All right, we're in our series, Finding Freedom, and it has been a fun one so far. Uh, we're looking at the Old Testament story of the Exodus to learn some truths about freedom and finding freedom for ourselves. And here's what we've been saying from the beginning. Freedom is something that we all want. It's something that we all want to have, but it's something that very few of us find. And it's something that even few of our, fewer of us actually end up living out or staying in. And so from the beginning, we've been saying, saying this, that we don't find freedom on our own. We don't magically get smarter one day. We don't read enough books. We don't discover some, some magical formula. We don't find freedom on our own. We follow God into the freedom that he has for us, into the freedom that he won for us through Jesus on the cross, through the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, that we don't find freedom on our own. We follow God into the freedom that he has for us. And we've, in that, we've talked about the power of prayer, that God moves when his people pray that we should pray and win our, our freedom in the spiritual before we ever try to fight for it in the physical. And then last week, we looked at the idea of stepping into the purposes that God has created us for, that when we live out God's purposes, we will live in God's freedom. That if we want to actually stay free, one of the best practices we can get in the habit of is living for the purposes of of God, of living for worship, of living for a life of discipleship, living for a life of fellowship, living for a life that, that spreads the love of Jesus to others through evangelism and lives to, to make sure that we serve other people and lives for the purpose of service, that, we, that whenever we want to live in freedom, we have to make sure that we're living out God's purposes, that every single day of our lives, we can take a step toward living in God's freedom when we take a step to live out God's purposes. Now, as we get moving today, there's another significant thought that we kind of mentioned and I kind of brought up the very first Sunday that we haven't come around back to, but today we're going to come around back to it. And it's the idea that when we think of freedom, most of us, are, the first thing we think of is the idea of freedom from. Matter of fact, right now, would you, would you type that in the chat bar or say that right out loud wherever you are? Freedom from. Yeah, in other words, when we think of freedom, we think about how we can't wait to live a life where no one tells us what to do, where to go, how to spend our time. And we think about a life with no rules and no, no restraints. And we think about a life that has no limitations. In other words, you have the resources and the means and the relationships and the influence to actually do whatever it is that you want to do, to accomplish everything that you want to accomplish. That's the picture that most of us have when we think of freedom in our concept of freedom. But today what I want to do is I want us to help uh, to help us see something. Part of the reason that I think we struggle to live in freedom and to find freedom is because we have the wrong picture of freedom. See, because our life is so full of imperfect people and imperfect structures making the rules and giving us instructions, we have come to believe that real freedom is only found when we throw off all outside authority. When in reality, that's not freedom because when you make the rules and when you determine everything, you know where you take you. You know where you end up. I know where I end up when I'm the authority in my own life. And so here's the truth. Here's the truth that I want to make sure we understand today. And this is going to lead us into the story of Exodus. And this is going to lead us into the next portion of the book of Exodus that freedom, here's the truth. Freedom is not found by throwing off all authority. It's found by surrendering to perfect authority. Freedom is not found by throwing off and casting off all authority. It's not found by living a life surrendered only to yourself and your own wants and your own desires, where you make all the rules and you have everything and you can do everything that you want. Ultimate freedom, real freedom, true freedom is only found by surrendering to God's perfect authority. So here's we go. Today, as we dive back into the story of the Exodus, we're going to see how this plays out. When we left off the story last week, Moses had just agreed to God's plan and surrendered to God's purposes. Um, he was headed back to Egypt with his family and with the staff 
of God. And on the way back, sure enough, he is met by his brother Aaron, just as God had told him at the bush, that he is headed back and he meets his brother Aaron, who has come out into the desert to find Moses. Together they do just as God had instructed, and they go to see the king of Egypt, Pharaoh himself. Now, this moment would have been filled with some dramatic tension. Not only was this Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful man on the face of the earth, this was almost certainly someone that Moses grew up in the palace with. This was almost certainly someone that Moses at one point thought of as a brother and who at one point thought of Moses as a brother. Moses grew up in the palace of the previous Pharaoh. He grew up with the previous Pharaoh's real children. And the man that he stands before now is someone that he would have called a brother. On top of that, most scholars believe that the Pharaoh during the time of the Exodus was a king named Ramses II, or Ramesses II. In a fun little play on words, Moses' name actually was not a Hebrew name. Moses' name was given him to given to him by Pharaoh's daughter, by the previous daughter's Pharaoh. And in a fun little play on words, she gave him a very common name among the royals of Egypt. She gave him the name that was M.S., MS, which is short, or which, which basically translates to child or to my child. The king that he now stands before, Pharaoh, this, this, this person that he would have grown up with, this Pharaoh, his name was R-A-M-S-S. In other words, his name trans, literally translates to the child of Ra, the child of the sun god of Egypt. This person has been told his entire life that he is a child of God, that he is a son of the most powerful God in Egypt. So you have child standing before the child of God. It's an epic moment. It's a tense moment. It's a moment filled with all kinds of tension that we can't believe, that we can't imagine. That if you're Moses, you're going, what have I gotten myself into? I would only get myself into this type of situation if God told me to, oh man, he did, okay? So Moses is standing before the most powerful man on on the planet, a person he once viewed as a brother, a man he views as his superior, but he has God on his side. So Moses and Aaron go to him and they make a request for the people of Israel, just as God had instructed them to do. Let the people of Israel go on a three-day journey into the desert to worship our God and to make sacrifices to him. Um, Pharaoh, of course, he says no, and he tells Moses and Aaron to stop bothering him. On top of that, Pharaoh makes the decision that the Hebrews are asking for this favor, are asking to go to worship their God because they have gotten lazy. That, that, that they've gotten lazy and they've started dreaming and they've started imagining things. So he's going to punish them. And so up until that point in their slave labor, they were required to, they were required to make large bricks and the, and the Egyptians had provided and would bring straw for them to make bricks. And Pharaoh in this moment decides, because you're so lazy, you've obviously got too much time on your hand. We are no longer going to provide the straw for you. You have to go get the straw for yourself and we are not reducing your workload one bit. You still have to provide and you still have to create just as many bricks every day. And so in response to this, the people of Israel get genuinely angry at Moses and at Aaron. They complain, like, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing to us? Like, you're making our life worse. You're making our existence worse. Stop it. Like, in other words, God is in the process. This is amazing to us. This is what so many of us do. God is in the process of answering their prayers for freedom. And as soon as it gets a little bit choppy and as soon as it gets a little bit harder, the moment that it becomes difficult, they want to tap out. They want to run. They like, hey, 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 like, I know we've been praying for freedom. Even if this is part of the answer to us getting freedom, this has gotten harder. I want out. And we need to sometimes, I think, be reminded of this, that freedom is a fight. 
Freedom is a fight. It will get harder before it feels freer. Your discomfort will grow before you're stepping into, because you're stepping into unfamiliar territory. Your anxiety may rise to levels that you haven't felt before, because, before, before there is real peace. Because right now, because right now, like wherever you're finding yourself, wherever you find yourself living, right now, wherever you find, out, find yourself is comfortable. It may not be healthy, but it's comfortable. It may be killing you, but it's comfortable. It may not be the right thing, but it's the thing that comes naturally to you. And when that gets stripped away or where the familiar and the, un and the comfortable and the natural gets stripped away, all of a sudden you start to feel like something is going wrong. And I just wanna let you know in that moment, it might feel like a fight. And when it feels like a fight, I just want you to know God has called you to the fight. God has called you to the fight. Do not run from the fight that God has called you to. And so for the people of Israel at this point, God has called them to a fight. And Moses and Aaron go to God and God reassures them that he is with them, that he is fighting for them, that he's fighting on their behalf. And even though things have gotten uncomfortable right now, the fight has just begun and he is about to go to work. And then we see in Exodus chapter 7, we see God go to work. Here's what we're told in Exodus 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes down to the river. Stand on the bank of the Nile and meet him there. Be sure to take along the staff that turned into a snake. And if you're Moses, you're like, I take that everywhere. That's an amazing party. If, no, if nothing else, that's an amazing party. I take that staff anywhere. You do not need to tell me that, God. Then announced to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to tell you, let my people go so they can worship me in the wilderness. So this is what the Lord says. I will show you that I am the Lord. Look, I will strike the water of the Nile with this staff in my hand and the river will turn to blood. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. As Pharaoh and all his officials watched, Aaron raised his staff and struck the water of the Nile. Suddenly the whole river turned to blood. The fish in the river died and the water became so foul that the Egyptians couldn't drink it. There was blood everywhere throughout the land of Egypt. Pharaoh's heart remained hard though. He refused to listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had predicted. Pharaoh, it says, Pharaoh returned to his palace and put the whole thing out of his mind. This is, this is an unbelievable, this is God's first, first strike. God, this is an unbelievable thing that everyone experienced, that everyone witnessed, and that Pharaoh has seen with his own eyes, and Pharaoh is completely unmoved. Just about everyone's life in Egypt would have been thrown into absolute turmoil at this point, and Pharaoh is unfazed. This says something to us about Pharaoh, that Pharaoh was not an easy man to deal with, as if we needed to be told that. Pharaoh was not an easy man to convince, and even when he sees something absolutely extraordinary like this that would have affected everyone in his life, he goes, well, it's somewhere, someone else, and it's somewhere else's problem. It's not my problem. I can just go home and pretend that it doesn't exist. In Exodus 8, then we're told this, then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, raise the staff in your hand over all the rivers, canals, and ponds of Egypt, and bring up frogs all over the land. So Aaron raised his hand over the waters of Egypt, and frogs came up and covered the whole land. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and begged, plead with the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people. I will let your people go so they can offer sacrifices to the Lord. And Moses and Aaron going, it worked. It didn't take nearly as long. God said he would have to do like many miracles. You only had to do two. This worked. This is great. Pharaoh was okay. This is what we know. Pharaoh was okay as long as the problem was someone else and somewhere else's problem. Now he got uncomfortable and so he wants change. He's willing to let the people go so he can get comfortable again. But then as soon as comfort arrives, he turns around. He changes his mind. He decides not to let the people go. So the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, raise your staff and strike the ground. The dust will turn into swarms of gnats throughout the land of Egypt. 
So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded them. When Aaron raised his hand and struck the ground with his, ha- his staff, gnats infested the entire land, covering the Egyptians and their animals. All the dust in the land of Egypt turned into gnats, and the gnats covered everyone, people and animals alike. This is the finger of God, the magicians exclaimed to Pharaoh. That Pharaoh hired his own magicians, his own people who could do miraculous things. He said, this is the finger of God, the magicians exclaimed to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart remained hard. He wouldn't listen to them just as the Lord had predicted. Pharaoh's bros are saying, hey man, this guy is legit. What he's doing, what he's doing, we can't explain. We have no answers for why he is able to do what he is able to do. Pharaoh, I think that you are messing with someone bigger than Moses. I think you're like, if, if, if you want our advice, you're fighting something that we can't explain. You're fighting someone bigger than we can explain. You are fighting someone greater than Moses. Something and someone greater is behind what we are experiencing right now. Verse 20, we're told this. Then the Lord told Moses, get up early in the morning and stand in Pharaoh's way as he goes down to the river. Now, if you're Pharaoh at some point along this way, you start dreading that you're going to get up and go to the river for your, for your daily bath and that you will see Moses that day. So on this day, again, God says, go meet Moses on his way to his bath or go meet Pharaoh on his way to his bath. Go down to the river. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so they can worship me. If you refuse, then I will send swarms of flies on you, your officials, your people, and all the houses. The Egyptian homes will be filled with flies and the ground will be covered with them. But this time, this time I will spare the region of Goshen where my people live. No flies will be found there. Then you will know that I am the Lord and that I am present even in the heart of your land. I will make a clear distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will happen tomorrow. And the Lord did just as he said. A thick swarm of flies filled Pharaoh's palace and the houses of his officials. The whole land of Egypt was thrown into chaos by the flies. God literally draws a line in the sand. He literally draws a line to safeguard his people from his wrath. God's going to send a plague of flies on the nation, but where his people are will experience no flies. This is not house flies or horse flies. These are Middle Eastern stable flies, which leave an incredibly painful and large bite. Pharaoh, after this, Pharaoh once again promised to let the people go in exchange for stopping the plague. And once again, Pharaoh changed his mind as soon as the flies were gone. So in response to that, here's what happened. Go back to Pharaoh, the Lord commanded Moses. Tell him, if you continue to hold my people and refuse to let them go, the hand of the Lord will strike all of your livestock, your horses, donkeys, camels, cattle, sheep, and goats with a deadly plague. But the Lord will again make a distinction between the livestock of the Israelites and that of the Egyptians. And the Lord did just as he had said. The next morning, all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but the Israelites didn't lose a single animal. This is a horrible toil a horrible toll on the Egyptians to lose all of their livestock. Horrible toll. But then we're told this, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from a brick kiln and have Moses toss it into the air while Pharaoh watches. The ashes will spread like fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, causing festering boils to break out on people and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from a brick kiln and went and stood before Pharaoh. As Pharaoh watched, Moses threw the soot into the air and boils broke out on people and animals Unlike the Egyptians, why this is important. The Egyptians took great pride in their health and in their clear skin. This was something that they they took incredible pride in. And all of a sudden, God says, bye-bye, clear skin. Say hello to clear sill. This is God says, like, look, you're going to have a problem. You're going to have something you've never dealt with before. Boils on your skin. No more clear skin in the land of Egypt. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. Tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so they can worship me. If you don't, I will send more plagues on you and your officials and your people. Then you will know. And this is, this is, this is fascinating. This is where God starts to like, tell why this is happening. Then you will know that there is no one like me in all the earth. And then God says something that is so in-your-face, epic, amazing. By now, I could have lifted my hand and struck you and your people with a plague to wipe you off the face of the earth. I could have done this. But I have spared you for a purpose, to show you my power and to spread my fame throughout the earth. Let me read that one more time. I have spared you, Pharaoh, for a purpose, to show you my power and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So tomorrow at this time, I will send a hailstorm more devastating than any in all the history of Egypt. Now, in the, middle of, in, in the middle of reading the plagues that fell on the land of Egypt, oh my good Lord, this interaction and this message from God is something else. This is something else. God, through Moses, stops the entire operation to let Pharaoh know, hey, I know you think you're a big deal right now. I think you know, I think you think you're the most powerful person in the world. I know you think that you're some sort of God. I know you think that you're the ultimate authority. I know your level of pride is high. I know your level of arrogance is high. And I know you have hundreds of thousands of people who will bow down before you and worship you and will affirm everything that you think about yourself. I know you think you're a big deal right now, but I wanted to let you know that right now, Pharaoh, Right now, king of Egypt, right now, you are a prop. You are a prop in a sermon that I am writing and that I am delivering to the entire world about my power over any other power, about my power, about my being the real God over all gods, that what you think are gods are jokes, that what you think is power is a joke compared to my power. And right now, Pharaoh, while you think you're still a big deal, while you think you are in control, I am in control and you are an object lesson. You are a visual aid in my sermon. I am using what you think is power to display real power. I am using my power over your power, to prove that I am the king over kings, the God over all other gods, the powerful over what people think is power, the real power, the ultimate authority over temporary earthly authority. It says, I have spared you for a purpose. So you can humble yourself now or you can humble, humble yourself after a few more plagues, but at the end of the day, I am going to break you. I am going to break you and I'm going to humble you and the whole world will know about it. And here's just something, this is, this is a hard thing to hear. This is a hard thing to even say. I, I don't always wish this was true, but here's what I know about God. If God needs to break you in order to win you, God will break you out of love for you. If God needs to break you in order to win you, God will break you out of love for you. This is not this is not God's preferred method for drawing someone to himself, but he will do it nonetheless. If a relationship needs to be broken in order for you to come to him, he'll do that. If a job or a career needs to be broken or if a, 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 the path needs to be destroyed, for, for you to see God, God will do that. If money and things need to be stripped away for you to become desperate enough to look to God, God will do that. God loves you more than you could possibly know. And God loves you enough that he will break you so that he can win you because God loves you. And he knows that what's best for you is finding him. So he will not spare anything in your life if it means 
he can get to you, to win you. No. Story goes on in uh, verse 23 of chapter 9. We're told this, Moses lifted his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and lightning flashed toward the earth. The Lord sent a tremendous hailstorm against all the land of Egypt. Never in all the history of Egypt had there been a storm like that. With such devastating hail and continuous lightning, it left all of Egypt in ruins. Then Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron. This is fantastic. This is amazing. This time I have sinned, he confessed. <laughs> From the lips of Pharaoh. This time I have sinned, he confessed. The Lord is the righteous one, and my people and I are wrong. Please beg the Lord to end this terrifying thunder and hail. We have had enough. I will let you go. You don't need to stay any longer. And for a moment, Pharaoh was humbled. But again, when the discomfort left, he changed his mind, and he refused to let the people go. Exodus 10, we're told this. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Hebrews says, let my people go so they can worship me. If you refuse, watch out for tomorrow. I will bring a swarm of locusts on your country. They will cover the land so that you won't be able to see the ground. They will devour what little is left of your crops after the hailstorm, including all the trees growing in the fields. They will overrun your palaces and the homes of your officials and all the houses in Egypt. Never in the history of Egypt have your ancestors seen a plague like this one. And with that, Moses turned and he left Pharaoh. And then an argument kind of breaks out between Pharaoh and Moses about, like, well, who can go? Okay, if I decide to let your people go, who can go? And Moses says, we all need to go. And Pharaoh says, if I let all of you go, the Lord will need to be with you because I'll hunt you down. You can take the men, but you cannot take the women and children. I see what you're trying to do. And Moses says, that is unacceptable. The God of the Hebrews requires all of us to go. We're either all going or no one going. Pharaoh says, no one can go. And then God sends the plague of locusts on the land of Egypt. This was an incredibly huge, huge deal. This is an overwhelming swarm of locusts. This year, in, in, in the last year, in 2020, there was actually a terrifying swarm of locusts last year in India and Pakistan. They literally swarmed, it co the, the, the swarms of them literally covered buildings that were between seven and eight stories high. That if they were, if, you, if you've seen footage of this, it was, it was unbelievable. That in downtown areas, these swarms of locusts would be, you know, kind of pushed into these smaller areas than they were used to. And they were literally covering buildings where from one side of the street to the other side of the street, you could not see the building on the other side of the street. Scientists have recorded that, that 2,000 locusts, one, one ton of locusts, uh, a tiny fraction of a swarm, by the way, a tiny fraction of a swarm can eat as much as 25 elephants eat in a day. This is enormous destruction caused by a locust swarm. This, this, this group in, in, in India and in Pakistan, in one week's time, or in, in two weeks' time this last summer, did $5 billion worth of damage. This is what happened to the land of Egypt as a result of the, of, the, of the locusts. Just incredible damage. Then we're told this in verse 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Lift your hand toward heaven, and the land of Egypt will be covered with a darkness so thick you can feel it. So Moses lifted his hand to the sky, and deep darkness covered the entire land of Egypt for three days. During all that time, the people could not see each other, and no one moved. But there was light as usual where the people of Israel lived. The plague of darkness. And then we're told this in Exodus chapter 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will strike Pharaoh in the land of Egypt with one more blow. After that, Pharaoh will let you leave his country. Moses had announced to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. At midnight tonight, I will pass through the heart of Egypt. All the firstborn sons will die in every family in Egypt. From the oldest son of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the oldest son of his lowliest servant girl who grinds the flour, even the firstborn of all the livestock will die. And that night at midnight, 
the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh and all of his officials and all the people of Egypt woke up during the night, and loud wailing was heard throughout the land of Egypt. There was not a single house where someone had not died. It's devastating. The loss of every firstborn in Egypt. God struck one final blow, and Pharaoh was done. He let the people go. He actually pushed them out. He forced them to leave. The fight was long. The fight was real. And God won the war for his people's freedom. Now, that's a lot. That's a lot. There's, there's a lot that we just covered. And there's all kinds of big questions that would get raised by, by reading that. Like, did God really have to go that far? Did God really have to do all of that? In, in the war for his people's freedom, did, did God have to do all of that to get, to get Pharaoh's attention and the attention of the people of Egypt? We just read probably the most verses that I'll ever read in one sitting in our church. We just covered five and a half chapters of the story of the Exodus. And, it, and, and we should not miss this at all. In Egypt, this was roughly seven months of literal hell on earth. What they experienced was something that I don't know that anyone else in history has ever has ever lived through and experienced. I think I think people in in Egypt and during during this portion of, of their history would look at our year twenty and twenty and go, "Hey, I know you think things went crazy up there up there in twenty twenty, but I but I'll place literal money on the fact that we whatever you've got, we had crazier." I mean, we had, we had our river turned to blood. We had frogs in our houses. We had swarms of gnats. Then we had swarms of flies. Then all of our livestock died. Then we had storms of hail. Then we had you know, like just gigantic hail storm, storms. Then we had locusts show up. Then we had absolute darkness. And then we literally lost all of our firstborn children. Like everything that we went through is absolutely crazy. And at the same time, I think in 2020, like or 2021, we can look back on 2020 and go, you know what? But I, but I bet we felt some of the same things. I bet when every day we woke up going like, when is this going to end? When is life going to to get back to normal? What do we have to do for life to get back to some sort of sense of normality? What do we have to do so that we can wake up every day not wondering if something worse is going to happen? And I think at the end of the day, what we have to understand is make no mistake, at the end of the day, this was the most powerful nation on the planet that had been brought to their knees. And there are a lot of scientific theories out there trying to explain in the natural what caused the 10 plagues. Like outside the hand of God, is there a natural explanation? Some people have hypothesized these events could have been the natural repercussions of a volcanic eruption that happened on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. I kind of doubt that one. Um, others believe everything that happened could be drawn back to a single natural occurrence that caused the, the very first plague with, with toxic red algae causing the Nile to appear as blood and everything spiraled out of that occurrence that maybe happened. I, I'm, I'm not really sure. Here's what I know for sure. God snapped his fingers and he brought the most powerful nation on the planet to its knees and he snapped his fingers and he brought the most powerful man on the planet to his knees. In the 10 plagues, God took everything that Egypt and Pharaoh viewed as a God and a source and made a mockery of it to show his power and his authority over everything and over every one. Oh, you think the Nile is your source? Snap my finger and it's dangerous and toxic. You think frogs are your protectors? I'll give you so many frogs you won't know what to do. Desert God? Oh, cool. I'll turn the desert into gnats that come to harm you. You worship a fly God? I'll show you that I'm the most fly God. That was a terrible pun. I immediately regret it, but I'm still going to put it in the video. That was like, you, you worship a fly God? I'm going to turn the flies against you. You have gods that are, are represented as cattle? I will take out all of your cattle. You have gods representing health and clear skin. Cool. I'll make a mockery of that by putting boils 
on your skin. You have gods of the sky, gods of harvest, gods of the storms. I actually control the storms. I control the harvest. I control the sky. So I'll send a storm so large that it wipes out everything in its path. And then after that, I'll send locusts to finish off your harvest. And then I'll send darkness so that you can't see the sky. And then in one final swoop, you view Isis as the protector of your children, the goddess Isis as the protector of your children. I'll show you that I'll protect my children while yours are wiped out. God showed in unmistakable fashion that he is the ultimate authority with ultimate power and he wins. That's the ballgame. That's the whole thing. God is the ultimate authority. God has ultimate power. He is the king over kings. He is the power over power. He is the authority over authority. He rules, he reigns, and he wins. And Egypt would never forgive. And God's people would never forget that God was the power over every power. He was the real power over all earthly power, and they would never forget that message. So here's the thing. As we close, is there something that we take away from this when it comes to our freedom, when it comes to finding freedom, when it comes to living in freedom? Here's two thoughts. The first is simply this. God will do whatever it takes to win our freedom. God will do whatever it takes to win your freedom. God will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes. God will do whatever it takes. God wants you to know him and to have a relationship with him that brings you peace and joy and hope and life and a future. And if anything stands between you and that, anything stands between you and him, God is willing to do whatever it takes to remove that obstacle. This is why God took down Pharaoh and God took down Egypt. This is because, because they were standing in the way of God's people experiencing God's freedom. And God took them down. This is also why God sent his son Jesus, because sin was standing in the way, standing was standing as an obstacle to you and to you knowing him. Some of you today, your sin is standing as an obstacle right now, but God loves you so much that he did whatever it takes. And for someone, that's the thing that you need to hear today, that God loves you so much that he did not spare his own son. He sent Jesus to die a brutal death on a cross for you so that before your sin ever even became a reality, before you were ever born, the solution to your greatest problem, your sin, was available. And you can know him and you can make a decision to trust that today that God will do whatever it takes, and he did not spare his own son. But for someone else today, you need to hear this. You need to hear that if God won't spare his own son, he will not spare your pride. He will not spare your politics. He will not spare your feelings. He will not spare your career. He will not spare that relationship that needs to end. He will not spare your arrogance. He will not spare anything. That if it's in the way of him knowing you and you knowing him, he will remove any obstacle and he will not spare anything to know you. God will do whatever it takes to win our freedom. And here's a second thought. Life under God's authority is the exclusive source of real freedom. Life under God's authority is the exclusive source of real freedom. This is that thing that we talked about at the top that we think we'll find freedom and discover freedom when we finally throw off restraint and we've done and we have no one to listen to but ourselves. But here's the thing. In this story, you know who had no one else to listen to? You know who didn't have to pay attention to anything? You know who had ultimate earthly freedom? Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh didn't have to listen to anyone. Pharaoh had all the wealth and all the resources to accomplish everything that Pharaoh wanted to. And in dramatic fashion, Pharaoh was as free as could possibly be. And what we find in the story of the Exodus, and what we find in the story of these plagues, is that in a snap of a finger, God can take everything else away and show that he is the ultimate power and the ultimate authority. And that while we tend to think, if I can just get rid of everyone telling me what to do and everyone telling me where to be and everyone telling me where to go, I'll be free and I can make my own decisions and I can lead myself to the best place that's possible. What you know is true, that what happened for Pharaoh can happen to you. That when you have ultimate freedom, that when you have, that when you have the ability to dictate your own course and you have the own ability to set your own course and to lead yourself and to make your own decisions and tell yourself where to go and what to do and who to spend time with, we all tend to lead ourselves to some pretty dangerous places and we all tend to lead ourselves away from freedom. That's why. Ultimate freedom, true freedom, real freedom is not found in casting off all authority. It's in surrendering to the perfect authority of our perfect heavenly father, the king above all kings, the power above all, 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 power, all earthly powers, the authority over every earthly authority, the one who does not have any other agenda but your good and knowing him, the one whose ways truly are higher than your ways, the one whose wisdom is far greater than your wisdom. It's, it's, it's only in trusting him and surrendering our lives to him that we experience real freedom that we end up where we're supposed to go, that we end up living the life that we're supposed to live, that we can find purpose, that we can find real freedom, and we can live in it every single day. That's what God wants for you. That's what God wants for me. So the question as we close today is simply this. Are we surrendered to God? Are we surrendered to perfect authority? Or in, or in, or in the course of us trying to throw off all authority, have we accidentally thrown off God's authority in our lives too? for you today, for me today, for every single one of us, I think it might just be the day. It might just be the best day that you've ever had to take a moment to surrender to God, to his plan, to his purposes, and in doing so to find real freedom. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much today for who you are. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that even in the middle of a story as dark and as bloody as the, as the plagues of Egypt were, God, thank you that even in there, we see your goodness. We see your mercy. We see you creating a way and making a way that your people did not have to experience your wrath. And God, I thank you that in this story, you demonstrate for once and for all time that there is nothing that you won't do in order to win our freedom. Thank you that you are that passionate and that concerned, that willing to use your power to secure our freedom. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you did not spare your own son to win our freedom. And God, I just simply pray today that for every single one of us, wherever this lands, and it's going to be a lot of different places, that we would have the wisdom to know what to do with what we've just heard. God, help us have the wisdom to surrender to your perfect authority, your perfect power, your perfect wisdom, your perfect direction. God, give us the wisdom to know how to do that. Give us the courage to do it every single day starting today. I love you, God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.